0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 is the longest chapter in the book of Mark, and we are almost halfway through it, but we're going to spend a couple weeks here on this passage. Because here we're coming to another one of Mark's sandwiches. That is a story or two stories that bookend... Another story in the middle. This time, we're going to focus on the opening bookend of this sandwich. And the sandwich is composed of two betrayals, two treacheries against Jesus. Verses 17 through 31 talk about how Judas is going to betray Jesus. And it closes with how Peter is going to betray Jesus by denying Him. And right in the middle is the Lord's Supper where Christ offers Himself, His body broken and His blood poured out for those who have turned their backs on Him. This is where Jesus institutes His faithful promise to His people despite their unfaithfulness. There is so much to drink from these verses, so let us read them. We'll start in verse 12 and read through verse 31, but we're going to focus on verses 12 through 21 today. So hear God's word from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But Woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you by your spirit attend now that your word would work in our hearts and in our minds that we might love and think more like you. We pray that your spirit would awaken dead hearts and would soften hard hearts. And for those who trust in Christ, would you grow us deeper into a love and knowledge of you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Today we're going to look at verses 12 through 21, in a three-part structure. Knowing that we're not going to quite get into the sandwich yet, we're going to stop uh, at verse 21. The structure is going to be God's plan, and then Judas' plan, and then we will consider our own plans. God's plan and Judas's plan before we then look at our own plans. God's plan comes from verses 12 through... Uh, verse 21, is kind of scattered throughout, there are two phrases in particular, in particular where Mark is highlighting for us that God has planned that this is going to happen. First of all, it is in verse 16 when it, Mark says that the disciples found it just as he had told them. And the other one is in verse 21 when Jesus says, as it is written of him. And we'll dig into these phrases here and understand how they prove that God has a plan that is at work, even in the betrayal of Jesus. In verse 16, Mark says that they found it just as he had told them. Here we find another case where Jesus had told the disciples, go into the city and you're going to find all these details lined up. And they found it just as he had told them. The last time he did this was in chapter 11, when he was about to enter on a cult into Jerusalem. as he was about to engage in the triumphal approach to Jerusalem, he had sent his disciples in and said, you will find these details, a colt tied here, tell the owner this. And that is very similar. It's a parallel to what's going on here. Here, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the city and he tells them, listen to these details. There's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. That was a rare sight because women typically, it was typically their job in that culture to carry the water. So this would be a uh, probably a very lowly man, potentially a slave. And so the disciples are then to engage with this man carrying a jar of water and they should follow him. Okay, can you imagine walking into a city with your friend and finding somebody and then just sneakily following him? You'd be afraid you might get caught. And Jesus says, follow him to the place where he goes and go to that house and talk to the owner of the house because the owner has a large upper room ready furnished. These details are quite small. Jesus even knows that there's going to be furniture in the room. And the owner will know what to do when the teacher, as he is called, when the, dis- the teacher's disciples come to him and they found it just as Jesus had told them. Now notice the disciples are the ones who come to Jesus and say, how can we prepare to eat the Passover with you? So they are, they're uh, anticipating and they go to prepare. And Jesus, though, he is already ahead of them. He has already prepared for them to prepare. It's likely that he made arrangements through a prior conversation with the owner of the house. But even if he hadn't, it's his supernatural knowledge that the father had revealed to him that helps him know this is the plan. Here's how we're going to move forward. Jesus is in control of this situation and he has a plan and all the details are exactly aligned with his plan as he heads toward his sacrificial death. And it's not as if Jesus only had this one thing planned out and the triumphal entry planned out and the rest he was just figuring out as he went. No, let's trace it back. Christ's death, as we're about to encounter, was placed in the context of the Passover. And the Passover is the the celebration of the sacrifice of the Lamb. Specifically, The Lord's supper here was placed on the night that it was culturally expected that the lamb would be sacrificed in preparation for the Passover to highlight that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that saves all those who hide in his blood. And then the disciples wanted to prepare for this meal with Jesus, but Jesus had already made arrangements before that, just as he had made arrangements uh, as he came into Jerusalem and even his journey toward Jerusalem shows that he was thinking ahead in his ministry. He was going to the place where he knew he was going to die. And along the way, there was the blind man who cried out, have mercy on me, son of David. He knew that this would be said. He knew that it would create this conflict. The son of David, the king coming to Jerusalem, there's going to be a conflict with those who claim authority in Jerusalem. Jesus had this all planned out the whole time because along the way he had predicted no less than three times that he was going to die and be raised. And even before this, The plan included his incarnation as he came, was born a man in Bethlehem of the the tribe of Judah. This is the one who was in the beginning with God. And God the Father and God the Son had covenanted to save sinful humans and to redeem them from the due curse of wrath and sin. We call this the covenant of redemption. Because from eternity past, God knew what he was going to do. It's not a figure it out as you go. God is not calling audibles along the way. This is a plan made, an agreement among the Trinity, especially between the Father and the Son, that the Son would come to earth and accomplish redemption for lost souls, for God's children. And he willingly made himself nothing, we read in Philippians 2. This includes the awful death which awaits him in this very scene. He made himself nothing. He became human. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you know, in other places, he prayed that the father's will would be done. What will? It's this will, the covenant of redemption, that those who are lost would be brought near and would be saved. And he talked about accomplishing all that he had come to do. Jesus knew he had a plan. He knew he had a mission and he was in control of all the details along the way. Because even as a boy in the temple, what was he about? His father's business he knew he had a job you can see it as early as genesis 3:15 proves that this plan was set in motion far in advance when the seed of the woman is said to crush the head of the serpent and here is the seed of the woman Jesus Christ about to do that very thing and it was even before genesis 3 that this plan was set in motion because Ephesians one reminds us that God knew all this, even before the foundation of the world. When Paul writes, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. His will has been working eternally for this eternal plan. And we're not supposed to be in awe of this specific detail of the man carrying the jar of water as we are supposed to be in awe of the architect of the plan. What a great eternal God who could have cut ties with the sinful people, but who loved and chose and knew and acted on behalf of his children for you and for me before we even knew it. This proves that the man carrying a jar of water in the furniture in the upper room these small details were a part of God's eternal plan of redemption. You can see these tiny details and see the magnificent, magnificence of our all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God. So the disciples found it just as he had told them. Now, as he's talking with Judas in the second part of our passage, Jesus says, so the son of man goes as it is written of him, verse 21, as it is written of him. Well, how does it go for the son of man as it is written of him? He's already told us he's going to be mocked. He's going to be ridiculed. He's going to be killed. And that is exactly how it goes of the son of man. And Jesus speaks specifically of the betrayal against him. The forsaking that he receives from a traitor. And when Jesus says it is written, he's, of course, referring to the Old Testament which tells us this about Jesus's betrayal. You see in Psalm 41, there's going to be a plotting. Psalm 41 verses seven and nine say this. All who hate me whisper together about me. Doesn't that sound like the Sanhedrin figuring out how to destroy Jesus? All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. And listen to this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That is what it was written of the Son of Man. And Isaiah 52 and 53 tells us even more details of what is written about the Son of Man. Details of his death. And we could read many, many verses in those chapters, but I'll just read verse 3 of chapter 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is what is written of the Son of Man. And this is how it will go of the Son of Man. And this proves to us that for hundreds of years, it had been written what would happen in this plan of redemption. And from eternity past, this plan had been set in motion. God's plan was at work even in these dark, dark days. And God has sovereignly orchestrated all the details of his plan from the overarching story of redemption down to the fact that there will be furniture in the room. And all this on the eve of his crucifixion. Let's turn to look at Judas's plan. Judas's plan, we learn a bit about his plan at the second half of verse 21 and in verse 19. And if you remember from last week's uh, passage, verses 10 and 11. Verse 21b, the second half says this. Jesus is speaking, says, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. There's gonna be that man who betrays Jesus. In verse 19, Jesus says it again. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And how is this betrayal put into action? Well, you see back in verses 10 and 11 from last week, it says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is Judas's plan. We know that the plan did indeed move forward with the kiss of treason in the garden as Jesus was handed over to his killers. But here in this betrayal, let's look at some of the circumstances around his betrayal. First of all, we're told four times in this passage that this is one man, one man. And we're told twice with a singular article that something's going to happen to that man. So six times, the fact that this man is acting solo is mentioned. And I believe this is an important part of what Mark is trying to tell us, because just in verse 13, Jesus had sent how many into the city? Two. And how many were in the group of the disciples? Twelve. And Mark even switches from referring to the disciples as the disciples to referring to them as the twelve. Twelve. And sure enough, the word 12 is a common reference, a common word used to describe the disciples. But Mark does switch to use the number to remind you that this is is the group that Christ has called together, the foundation of the church, the church leadership. And they are to work together. Because originally in chapter six, when Jesus first sent them out, he didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. And in our passage, again, Judas is described as one of the 12. The contrast is set that he is separating himself in his singularity. And he operates in rejection of the 12, in rejection of the apostles, in rejection of this church structure and accountability that God had given to be the foundation of the church. And he operates in opposition to Jesus himself. So he is opposed both to Jesus and to the fellowship of the church. And so just a sidebar, a brief application for us. I think we should be afraid if we find ourselves acting alone. Apart from the community of saints, without accountability, rejecting the gifts of godly wisdom and pastoral shepherding, there are no lone wolves in the disciples of Jesus. We all need the protection and the wisdom of the church. And another circumstance of this betrayal, besides Judas acting by himself, is the fact that he actively sought it out himself. It's not as if the religious leaders came to him and said, hey, we've got a plan. Will you help us? No, he sought the religious leaders out. The Sanhedrin was in a hold pattern waiting for the festival to be over until Judas initiated this was a willful decision to destroy Jesus, and it began in his heart. And as John's gospel tells us, it was also Satan working in him. It was premeditated, it was not an act of passion in the moment. It was plotted, planned, thought through. He weighed the pros and cons, and he decided to forsake the Savior in pursuit of monetary and social improvement. And the depth of this betrayal cannot be measured. In the Psalm 41 quote, it was said that the close friend, even the one who eats with me, will betray me. And Jesus seems to be referencing that because to betray a friend whom you eat with in the Middle East, that is the worst kind of treachery. Back then and to this day, to eat with somebody is a sign of loyalty and friendship of a familial kind and acceptance. That is cold hearted. Imagine eating dinner with someone you've spent three years with. Someone who's shown understanding and love beyond what you've ever seen. You look at that man across the table with the plan in your heart to turn him in tomorrow. For 30 pieces of silver. About 15 or 20 thousand dollars. To kill him. Imagine all these things. And then Jesus says, as he does in our passage, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Heart starts pounding and you wonder, wait, does he know? Is he talking about me? Or is there another one of the disciples who has a plan to betray him? And then Jesus offers the bread and the wine as his body and his blood broken for you. If that doesn't prick the heart to change course, to cancel the betrayal, then what could? What kind of heart could be so murderous and treacherous to forsake the flesh and blood and compassion of Jesus Christ? Only a dead, cold, self-obsessed heart. And of course, it goes without saying there is no payment. If the payment had been ten times that, There is no amount of money that is worth turning your back on Jesus. There is no job. There is no paycheck that is worth forsaking your savior and the blessings that he gives us in his word and in communion with him around the supper and with the saints and in his word. And if you find yourself wondering whether it's worth neglecting that little act of obedience, it's just a little thing that I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Maybe I should neglect that. Maybe I should duck out of my wholehearted participation in the fellowship of the saints, or maybe I should not be so dedicated to meeting God by His Spirit and His Word every day because that takes a lot of work. So all this in pursuit of just a few hours of work to make a little extra money or maybe you just want to do it to, to sleep a little more or to spend time on your projects or because you, you're failing to give every corner of your heart and your mind and your actions in obedience to God. And I say this because it is true of every single one of us that we've turned our backs on our God and we have neglected the little things that turn into the big things. Those little seeds of betrayal are the seeds of full-blown betrayal. And so we ought to be warned alongside Judas. And we should surrender ourselves now to the gracious melting of our hearts by the Spirit's work. And this is for those who have never believed. And this is for Christians who have been walking with Christ for a long time because our hearts are idol factories and we continue to pursue wickedness. And what did Judas get for his outright rejection of the Savior, his betrayal? There's not much explanation needed because what Jesus says is loaded. Verse 21, the last few the last couple phrases. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is an eternal punishment. Judas has been, is and will be paying the penalty for his sin forever. None of the joys that he experienced in getting money and potentially climbing the social ladder by putting together a plot with the leaders of society. None of those joys that he thought were going to bring him joys. None of them hold a candle to the torment of his sin. It would be better for him if he had not been born. He failed to submit to the son of God. And so he receives the eternal payment for his sin without the benefits or blessings or righteousness of the son of God it would have been better for him if he had not been born. That's heavy. That's hard. There's an underlying question we need to address before we get to look at our, our own plan. And it's the question of this. If Jesus was operating with such confidence in an eternal plan, and Judas is going to be held responsible for betraying Jesus. If it's better for him that he had never been born, that means he's going to be paying the penalty for his sin as a part of God's plan. That seems problematic. How could it be? That God's plan included Judas' betrayal, and yet Judas is responsible for his Rejection of Jesus. I think it's helpful for us to note that Judas acted entirely freely. Before Christ enters anyone's heart, what can we choose? Only sin. Only what the sinful nature desires and only what is a part of our nature. Judas freely sought out the betrayal of Jesus. There is nothing morally good about what he did. His betrayal and his lack of faith. There's nothing noble in what he did and the due punishment for his sins is indeed just because they are an offense against an eternal God. Judas felt no compulsion by God to enact this plan. And like every other sin committed in the world, it is a willful choice on the part of the sinner. But it is true that behind the scenes, God's plan was still moving forward despite Judas's moral failings. Because God used a moral failure for redemptive good. God used a moral failure for redemptive good. And it's, it's, we have to state this good, this redemptive good actually does not work for the good of every single person because those like Judas who have betrayed him and have not received the life that we find in Christ, they are not those who love God. And you know that only those who are in Christ receive this redemptive good. Paul tells us in the famous verse, Romans 8, in all things, God works together for good. In all things, God works together for good. For whom? For those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Judas did not love God. Judas was not called according to God's purpose, and therefore these things did not work together for Judas' good, but it does work together for God's redemptive plan. I, I, wanna, I want us to think back to the Old Testament for a minute. A famous story of Joseph, son of Jacob, Israel. His older brothers did not like him and sold him into slavery acted as if he were dead, covered his coat in blood, sold him, got some money out of him. He went down to Egypt and he ended up being imprisoned and his father thought he was dead. And there was not a single morally good thing about the brothers turning in Joseph. Not a single good thing about it from a moral perspective. And they deserved to face the penalty for their breaking the law. But many of you know how the story goes. They came to Egypt. The brothers came to Egypt at a time of famine and Egypt alone had food and they found their forsaken brother, Joseph, whom they had sold, who who was good as dead to them. And he had great power and great authority. And what Joseph said to them as they were shaking before him because he had the power to kill them for what they had done to him. He said this, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Did you catch that? What the brothers meant for evil, the betrayal of Joseph, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should have life. So in Jesus, when Satan and Judas and the religious leaders are getting together and they are betraying God, there is Jesus. There is nothing morally good about that, but God takes what they meant for evil and he brings about good, the redemptive good of many that many might live. We cannot say that God is responsible for Judas's actions. He is not the author of sin, but he redeems through it. He does not tempt and he does not make anyone to sin. Yet when people do, he ultimately purifies and he redeems his children despite it. What is objectively immoral and sinful is not beyond God's ability to work for the good of His children, even as He planned their use from before the foundation of the world. Our Westminster standards explain a couple beautiful truths about this. This comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. First paragraph says this, listen to this beautiful truth. God, the great creator of all things does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest, even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Our God is at work, and He uses everything to the praise of His glory. We also see in paragraph three that God, in His ordinary providence, makes use of many means. Yet He is free to work without means, above means, and against means at His pleasure. And here in verse, and excuse me, in uh, paragraph four, it says, "The Almighty power and unsearchable wisdom." and infinite goodness of God so far manifests themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall. It says, e- God was even in control as man fell and as all other, other sins of angels and men, that not just by barely permitting it, not just by a bare permission, but such as has joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding. God is working with all means to order and govern them in manifold ways to his own glory and ends. And here's the important line for us. Yes, God is in control. But even so, as the sinfulness proceeds only from the, cre- from the creature That is, Judas alone was the one who sinned in this moment. God did not sin in the betrayal of Jesus. When you and I sin, it is not God who is making us sin. We are sinning. Therefore, the sinfulness proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who is most holy and righteous. And so he cannot be the author or approver of sin. That does not satisfy every intellectual curiosity. It's because God is above and beyond what we can comprehend. That the way that God works, even alongside the choice that men make to sin may not make sense to us ever. But we know who he is and we know that he is not the author of sin. So as we have seen now God's plan in action and we have seen Judas's plan in action and somehow how God is sovereign over all that, we must examine our own hearts and our own lives and figure out what is our plan? What is your plan? You get that question a lot as you graduate high school and as you graduate college. What's your plan? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What are you going to live? Where are you going to live? We have to remember, though, that we all start as traitors. Every single one of our plans starts selfish. Every single one of us is eager to betray Jesus for our own gain And we do it through prodigal son type recklessness and selfishness and blatant disregard for the father. And what we miss sometimes is that often we can use our good deeds to betray Jesus. Our plan can look like we're gonna follow all the rules and do the right things, but we don't realize that in putting our faith and doing the right thing, we are saying we don't need what Jesus has to offer. And therefore we betray our savior and say, it's still up to me. And you're still building your kingdom to earn your self-approval, whether from man or from God. The, rea- the reality is, on our own, our hearts are corrupt. They are idle factories and they are desperately wicked. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And Paul lays it out even more in Romans 3 when he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good. He keeps going. Not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. There is no fear of God before their eyes. to, To the unbelievers, to all of us, before we were in Christ, we maintain that opposition to God at all costs. Because that is our nature and we cannot help but push against God. But once the Spirit enters and gives life so that someone can then trust in Christ and place their faith in Christ, they no longer have to do what sin and what gut longings tell you to do and what the world directs you to do because you're governed by the good Savior in that moment when the Spirit enters. When you submit yourself to Christ, this is the one who has given His body and blood for you, and He now is the one who can direct your plan and direct your steps. both believers and unbelievers, we must ask ourselves whether the direction of our life is in full dependence upon God's plan. If we, if we operate with a grateful posture in cheerful days and in challenging days, would you say that your heart is defined by gratitude Or by discontentment and wanting to move forward to the next thing and get the next thing? Are you so eager that your plan might turn into these bounties that you've been seeking that you get frustrated when you're not? If you lack patience, if you lack contentment, you are driven by your plan. And I say that because it is in so many ways true of me. (laughs) Or is our default to say, thank you, Lord, for where I am, for what I have, for what you are doing. When it is hard, you are teaching me. And the faith that you are growing in me right now is worth far more than 30 pieces of silver. Examine your own heart of betrayal against Jesus. Yes, you, and I'm not talking to the person beside you. I'm talking to you. We are the mocking voices that call out among the scoffers. When Jesus hung upon that cross, we are the ones who turn our back on him, who have forsaken our savior and failed to obey. We have betrayed him in the deepest, darkest, coldest of dead hearts, but it is not too late for you and for me. It is exactly ones like you who are pardoned by Jesus' sacrifice, whom Jesus loves, whom he broke his body and poured out his blood for, and you too can receive it. Come. If you dare to come alongside a wretched sinner like me and the others in this room, come to this Jesus who died in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. How do you get that? To trust that he's enough. We call this looking to him in faith, receive and rest upon him receive what he's earned and rest in his own merit so then our charge for every single one of us today is to get in christ and to stay in christ don't just get near him like judas was don't just know a lot about him and use him to try to climb the ladder get into christ Be swept over by the change that comes from the Spirit's regenerative work. Surrender your allegiance to the old ways and find freedom, the loosing of bonds and chains, the enlivening of your will by getting into Jesus, by trusting Him, by admitting you can't do it and that He's done it all. On our own, without Him, it would be better if we had not been born. For anyone who is not in Christ, it would be better if you had not been born But once you look to Christ in faith, you're going to receive life beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. Our job today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and the rest of of our lives is to redo your plans every day. Redo your plans every day. Because every time something comes up that you don't expect, rather than pushing back against it, with a grudge in your heart, say, Lord, what are you reminding me of? Are you reminding me that your plan is to redeem me and to sanctify me, to make me love what is holy, even through this trial? God's plan is at work. And God's plan will prevail. Some of you are there. Some of you, not perfectly. None of us is there perfectly, right? But, but some of you have walked with God long enough that you know this is really hard right now, but I'm going to say praise God. I'm going to say thank you, Lord, as your house is destroyed. You can say with sincerity, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And the more that we as believers grow in this mindset and this dependence upon Him, the sweeter this way of living is. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in trusting and leaning on Christ. Surrender after surrender And looking to his sovereign plan that's working. Redo your plan every day and say that what I had planned for today, isn't it? What God has planned is what my plan is going to be. We have to let God change our plans. You, You know that proverb in Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. As the Lord establishes your steps, even against what you had planned, you say, thank you, Lord. This is good. Don't be tossed to and fro by the winds of the world and your schedule. Define it all by Christ. And I'll leave you with two verses. One that shows us how we continue to follow God's plan in our minds and one that shows how we continue to follow God's plan in our hearts. Be renewed in your mind in Romans 12. You know this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is describing a head, a Christian mind that absorbs the truth of scripture and of theological talk and of testimonies of God's work in Christians' lives and stories of what God is doing. And this is a mind that thinks critically about the worldliness around us and shuns the lies of Satan and doesn't dance with half-truths of the world's religions and with the unreligions of the world. This is a mind that is set on things above, filled with awe at what Christ has done, that digs deeper into scripture to more today than yesterday with a willingness to learn and to be corrected and to grow. That's what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what it means to surrender your plans to God with your mind. And we also surrender our plans to God with our hearts. As opposed to the cold, dead heart that we all once had. Listen to how David, a man after God's own heart, Mind you, listen to how David describes his heart in Psalm 37. He says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Our job then is to love what God loves and to delight in what he delights in. And when we see ourselves loving something that is sinful and worldly and against what God has designed, we actively root it out. You are not slave to your lusts and your loves. The Spirit works in you to give you new desires. And it becomes a life without fear, a life without anxious grabbing onto anything that you can hold onto. This is a life of joy and gratitude because little by little the Holy Spirit erodes those old loves. Sometimes He comes in big waves and takes out the old loves so that we love what God loves, what is good and sincere and true and eternal is a life of delight and the one source of good, the Lord himself. Would that be our plan? God's plan to become more like Christ every day. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being so patient with rebels like us. We are so undeserving, yet you invite us. In grace, not to come and be better, not to come and earn your favor, but to come and receive and to rest upon what Christ has done. We pray that you would renew our minds. We pray that you would fill our hearts, that we might think your thoughts and love the things that you love to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.